0: All right, take a look at the handout. We'll be going through the book of Proverbs. We have a long chunk here, chapters 28 and 29. They are connected as a literary unit. Before I explain the literary unit, let me point out where we have come from as a reminder. So chapters 1 through 9 is collection 1. There's internal things inside of it that help us to see and it's a long collection. It's focused on the child. It's focused on the youth. It's meant to help those who are immature so that they can come to wisdom. The idea there is an encouragement to listen to instruction more than anything else. There are long sections that are put in sort of story form, warning form. It's more narrative. It's more something that's longer connected to literary chunks. It's easier to follow and to see the connections. It is the simplest section. And we're given there the purpose statement of the book, Which is to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. And then we're given a thesis in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so we're set up there to go, hey, if I don't like this book, if I don't like what it's telling me to do, then it's saying that I'm a fool. Because the book is about wisdom and it's about instruction, right? To know wisdom and instruction. And so we're set up to say, ah, you've got to come back to this book. And it creates this sort of this trap of if you don't like it, what does that make you? A fool? If you do like it, then you're going to keep consuming it. Now, collection two is the longest chunk. Remember, we have chapters 10 through the middle of 22 The 375 Proverbs of Solomon. And we move from the child or youth to the young man, the adult. It kind of tells you how to govern yourself well in the world and traps to avoid as you're beginning to have greater independence. Collection 3 has a summation of that in a very short form. The 30 sayings of the wise. then we get to collection 4, which is even shorter. And it's sort of a bridge to say, okay, so you're an adult but there are problems you're going to have to deal with more than governing your, yourself and your own household. And it begins to help to lay out some of the problems in a very short form that have to occur in leadership. So we went through that, and we saw that sort of is almost an addendum to collection three, but there's an intentional separating the, the further sayings of the wise. And we got to collection five, which is uh, a longer one, but it sort of returns to um, being the Proverbs of Solomon and they are put together by Hezekiah's men. So we have a separation of time there. There's a significant separation of time. Um, and we get into Hezekiah's men's pulling together of these Proverbs. And these are Proverbs that are for the father, for the leader, for middle management, for somebody who's a courtier. You're in a king's court. You're not the king. There's this idea of the person who's in authority. And so we started to go through what does that person have to think about? What are their concerns And these concerns are concerns that get shared with the king. But we looked at part one of this collection, chapter 25 up through 27. And as we looked at it, we saw that it begins by dealing with the conflict of the righteous and the wicked in the court of the king, in the halls of power. So there's this problem of the conflict and the reality that even a good king with bad advisors will rule badly. A a good king who's fed wrong information, a good king who's influenced wrongly, a good king who has people around him who are pushing him either to compromise or, or give up or not have the right views or who feed him false information so that deception and false testimony begin to be weaponized to harm people. And so we we think about that in contrast with Solomon. Solomon is famous for having you know the the split the baby example where there's this way of trying to drive out the guilty person and get them to reveal themselves. And so Solomon uses mechanisms to help to find who are the wicked that he needs to punish, who are the righteous that he needs to safeguard. How does he help to preserve the innocent and to drive out the wicked. And so there's that example there. And then there is this awful reality that Solomon has all of that and then invites in idolatrous women and serves false gods. So we have this shocking reality of Solomon's life with the great skill and wisdom to drive out wickedness the reception of wealth and power, and yet the inviting in of wickedness and the throwing away of it all. So that is where we have this example of the conflict between the righteous and the wicked in a powerful way historically, the very man who gives us these proverbs. Now you get into chapter 25, starting at verse 28 through chapter 26. And we dealt with the seven types of corrupt people. Remember, it laid out the undisciplined, the fool, the sluggard, the busybody, the joker, the slanderer, and the hardened enemy, the nemesis. And these are people to look for, to be careful. Hey, when you're making allies in the courts of power, be aware of these dangers. Be careful about who you work together with. Be careful who you rely upon. And so there's these dangers And dealing with certain types of people and and making it so you're dependent upon them while you're trying to fight for power and avoid the rule of the wicked. And then at the same time, chapter 27 gives us a positive view about friends and about the importance of friends and being loyal to friends across time and the friends of your father. And we are presented with the importance of not only caring about friends, but also Managing your own estate while you are in public service. That's because if you don't manage your estate, if you don't preserve and build capital, you will not have the resources necessary to be able to pour out overflow to care for other people in public service. So all of that gets laid out for us as part one. And that was mostly comparative proverbs. There's a very small set, I'm on page 2, there's a very small set of antithetical Proverbs, and I've got those listed for you. Chapter 25, verse 2, 27, verse 6, 7, and 12. All the rest of those are comparative. Think about how overwhelmingly those are, this is like this, as opposed to this thing, but here's the alternative that's contrary to it. We get to part 2, verse 20, chapter 28 through 29, This is made up of 33 antithetical contrast proverbs. This but. This but. This but. So there's this strong change of literary style. I would suggest, since God is intentional in everything he does, that this is intentional. So the intentionality of the contrast, what we have here is we are looking at a contrast between the righteous and the wicked over and over again. And the contrast between the righteous and the wicked has to do with power. What about power? Its uses and the limits of what it can do. The uses of power and the limits of what human power can accomplish. And so we're going to look at that in terms of the righteous and the wicked. So, this text is going to be broken up. If you look at the bottom of page 2, it's going to be broken up. It's a, it's a chiasm. Okay, so I've laid out the structure of the chiasm for you so you can see it. So as you know, A relates to A prime, B relates to B prime, and so forth. And so we have a center proverb. So the introduction, the conclusion, and the center proverb are things I'd like to read for you so you can see the sharpest edges of the unit. Okay, so let's read the introduction first. Introduction on page 3 here. It's chapter 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now let's go to the center verse of the chiasm. (coughs) Page 5. Heading F. Chapter 29, verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now let's go to the conclusion. Page 6, bottom of the page. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. Righteous. And he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So we start out with an assertion that the wicked are cowards and the righteous are bold. In the middle, we're told that the man who rejects rebukes will be destroyed irreparably so. And at the end we're told that there's an antithesis between the wicked and the righteous. This war cannot be avoided. The righteous are bold. When the bold have the opportunity for the offensive do they take it? This war is unavoidable. The righteous are bold. The wicked are the wicked are cowards. And if you will not repent of wickedness, <coughs> if you will not repent of wickedness, you will be destroyed. Now think about this. There's a cowardice in the wicked and a threat of destruction should cause that person to flee. The preaching of judgment is one of the mechanisms that we have for causing the wicked to falter. One of the things that the the wicked hate is when the law of God is propounded clearly and turned into cultural norms, which is why the homosexual sodomite agenda has sought over and over again to normalize every sort of sexual perversion. The elimination of stigma. The elimination of stigma is meant to make it so that we can't pronounce judgment and that we'll get shouted down if we do. That shouting down to avoid the pronouncement of judgment is designed to limit their own fear. This is this sort of crowd mob mentality to make it so that there can't be discussion about what is right and what is wrong, but instead to shout it down. Cancel. Shout. Make it so the person can't talk. That effort to drown out discussion and debate to have any sort of reasonable discussion about morality about sexual ethics at all the same thing occurs if you talk about the Bible and politics the law of God applied to politics shouted down and we have all sorts of catchphrases for it things that are meant to sound like you're educated separation of church and state I must have a degree in history I pulled that out. Wow. Separation of church and state is something everybody has heard so many times. It's like the only verse of the Bible that the same people know. Judge not, lest you be judged. Both are pulled out of context. Both are used in a way so as to make it so that their intention behind the original communication is ruined. But this idea of shutting down discussion, shutting down judgment, is meant to eliminate the ability to use the law of God to bring fear to people. The conscience is an ally of the Christian because the law of God being written on the heart makes so that we are able to deconstruct false views of morality and we are able to pull upon the elements of the law in people's minds. And we can cause people, when they feel a tension about what is right and what is wrong, it slows down their action. One of the ways to be decisive is to be very clear about what you think is right and what you think is wrong. If you know your goal, you know what's allowable and what's not, and you know the means at your disposal, you can quickly come to conclusions. If you don't know any of those things, you will be paralyzed, or you will take actions that are totally irrational having a goal, knowing the allowable means, knowing the available means. That makes it so you can decisively take action. So we need to know the goal as Christians, to be bold. We have a goal, the glory of God, filling the earth. The knowledge of God, filling the earth. That's the mission. All right. All right. What are the means that we're allowed to use? The law of God. It teaches us how to exercise dominion. It teaches us how to rule. It teaches us how to take intermediary steps. It gives us an order of operations. It makes it so that we know what we need to do to advance the goal. And then, what means do we have available? We just ended chapter 27. Chapter 27 was about being careful about your friendships and be careful about your capital. If you're careful about your friendships, you know which allies you can rely upon. And if you're careful about your capital, you know what money you can spend to accomplish the goal. So this idea of being bold comes from knowing those things. The righteous are bold. And if you find that you are not bold, ask yourself, why is that? The degree to which You are righteous is going to be the degree to which you are empowered to be bold. The Lord Jesus Christ was very bold. We will not be perfect in this life, but by degrees we can be transformed after his image. And if we are, even dim glimmers of Jesus Christ, we will overcome. We will conquer. We will be more than conquerors. Now, we have those major points. The introduction, the center proverb, and the conclusion. And those are meant to give us a structure to see the major things. The rest of it starts to draw out information relating to it. So, Back to the introduction, go to page three. Introduction, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Let's think about this in a little more detail. The wicked flee when no one pursues. When you do something wrong and you're worried about getting caught, you get jittery. You get easily scared. A small sound might make you run you find that when you are doing wickedness, there's a tendency to assume that other people are seeking your harm, doing wickedness. There's this alienation from other people. There's the worry about being caught. And so there's this sense of aloneness. And there's a sense of weakness. And a sense that you're going to be punished. Righteousness, you go, I belong here. I belong here. What I'm doing is legitimate. I belong here. No reason for anybody to care what I'm doing. No reason for anybody to be concerned about Nobody No reason for anybody to stop me or to do anything to me. If they do, they're in the wrong. And I feel comfortable telling them, back off. But That's the effect of righteousness. You feel like you own the place. And the righteous will inherit the earth. So you do. Verse 2, we get into verses 2 to 11. We have instruction here about rule, and that relates to the boldness. How do you you manifest this boldness? How do you manifest a dominion attitude? Verse 2, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. There's a stability that comes with understanding and knowledge justice or the right is prolonged (coughs) the transgression of a land causes there to be a quick succession of princes anybody familiar with the year of the four emperors in Rome well those emperors were not particularly just one replaces another, replaces another, replaces another, replaces another series of assassinations. Familiar with the continent of Africa? I know about the place, I've seen it on maps. The continent of Africa, you have in countries coups and revolts and revolutions and rebellions, one after the other after the other, in many countries. What happens is iniquity causes rebellion. Rebellion causes a rejection of caring about the established authority and it creates a habit of when you have the ability, just replace the people in power with you. Because of transgressions, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes. Now, people taking this verse to suggest that that means a republic, councils, those types of things are, are things that are bad when you have lots of rulers and so therefore... You'd want to have less rulers, more concentrated power, and fewer people. That is not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is talking about the succession of rulers that comes when there's instability from injustice. A king's throne is established by righteousness. Justice allows rule to be prolonged. A man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. So those are being connected back to past issues. So the use of power... Power has its limits. Human beings cannot use power for whatever they want. They will destabilize themselves. They will cause collapse amongst themselves. And so empires that are wicked, beast empires, tear themselves apart. A poor man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain which leaves no food. So Marxist revolutions have this tendency. You have a basically a poor person who demagogues the poor, into killing the rich to take their stuff. Now, what these people do is they then make sure that the poor don't hold on to things. They take what those people have, and they take what the peasantry class has, and the relatively poor elements that are not a part of that revolution, and even parts of the revolution, Mao's revolution in particular, he betrayed other units of the communist revolutionary party and over and over again found ways to work against and betray his comrades in order to seize power in the party. And so there's this grasping, oppressing, stealing element, this way in which these People who are poor, who want to oppress the poor, they have this locust-like mentality to take everything, to empty the land. And so there is this danger of a person trying to rally the poor to then oppress the poor or to rise up and seize power to oppress the poor. We've seen revolutions like this throughout history. And so this idea, we talked about this, the, the difference between the, the noble versus uh, the poor, the use of those words, those sort of refer to the idea of a, a, a noble mentality, a generous spirit. Generous comes from genera, which has to do with the idea of having a good birth. Christians, we should not refer to uh, generosity or nobility. We should refer to liberality, to right, freeness of giving. But historically, those terms have been associated with, with people who have money. And the idea is that the, those who are trained in a position of poverty have a tendency to be grasping. That people who had been slaves who gained power have a, a historical association with being grasping. Is that because having money necessarily gives you virtue of soul? No. But if you're rich and you don't care about anybody... You learn to do things that placate other people's anger in order to maintain your own station. And so there's certain outward things, being generous in small amounts, doing things to not look grasping so you don't look petty. Pettiness in power causes reaction. Someone who is petty in power, a poor man who oppresses the poor, makes it so that there's no food left. They don't just come in and take your money. They don't just come in and take your your gold bullion. They don't just come in and take the rifles that you have. They take the stuff off your pantry shelves. So that's the idea. The idea here is a person who's grasping, a person who has petty sensibilities, when he oppresses people who are of low station. This person is trying to take every little thing they can. And so there's this horror of the wicked when they're petty. Have you ever noticed that people, sometimes, have you ever met a person who is offended by little slights? (coughs) Little slights that make them furious. If a person is in power and they are offended greatly by little slights, There's this detail obsession of control and there's a detail obsession for wanting to get it all. That is a manifestation of the grasping nature. If you are able to overlook offenses, it is a glory to men. Overlooking offenses is a glory to men. So the opposite of being sort of that petty-minded, small-minded, magnanimous, great-minded, that's the The word magnanimous is to be great-minded. Overlooking offenses. Christians are made by the Holy Spirit into great minds. They are made magnanimous. They are caused by the work of the Holy Spirit to overlook offenses. And so a removal of petty grasping from the soul is a part of what makes it so that the church can cooperate and be wise in working together and is not fractious, does not tear itself apart, if we don't cultivate that, if we don't teach the scriptures about that, then we will tear ourselves apart. So we want to see something lasting. There has to be a magnanimous spirit, a liberality, a freeness to give rather than a grasping Taking. Think about Judas when he was serving as the treasurer for the apostles and for Jesus. He was angry about the use of ointment on Jesus because he knew it was worth about 300 denarii. And he knew that he could probably steal about 10% of that because you can typically steal about 10% without getting caught. People don't feel it. 15%, by the way, is the amount. If your wages go up 15%, you feel richer. Okay, the 15% change. There's a number of, number of imp- empirical studies that show that people start to feel differently when there's a 15% increase or decrease of things. So, the general rule for graft, just in case you're trying to steal from somebody that you are running or managing the treasury of, just you, you, you can get away with about 10%. So, you, don't, you know, you're acting treasurer, you know, just be careful, limits. So, so that 10% rule, so that would have been about 30 pieces of silver out of 300. And so that's also the amount that Judas was paid. Right? He was paid the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. So it's an interesting sort of sense of this idea of getting what was taken uh, when that ointment was used. So a poor man oppresses the poor. is like a driving rain which leaves no food. So there's this coming in. The other thing about a poor man, you expect a poor man coming in, you expect him... To care about the poor. You go, this guy is a man of the people. He understands where we're coming from. He's going to care for us. So it's like a rain coming, and you go, this is great. It's going to be a blessing. And then it just keeps raining. And it just keeps raining. And it just keeps raining. It's a driving rain. Instead of nourishing the fields, it destroys the food production. So it's too much of a good thing, so to speak. It's having a person who you think they're going to understand you? And in reality, because they have some shared sensibilities, those shared sensibilities of pettiness cause them to be petty as rulers. So this is a danger to be looked out for. So be careful when you're in power to not oppress the poor, but instead to be careful to see the poor protected because they have less resources to protect themselves. So one of the things that we need to remember as Christians Seeking to fight for power in the courts of power, we fight so that God's law will be applied, will be upheld, and that is a fighting for social justice. Social justice looks like protecting the property rights of the poor, not redistributing money, not taking money from those who are productive and giving it to the non productive. It looks like defending the property rights of those who do not have the resources to defend their own. So the night watchman mentality, the rich can hire security guards. Who cannot afford to hire security guards? A law order coming from the law of God protects the property rights of those with little property. Verse 4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked but such as keep the law, contend with them. Are you praising the wicked, or are you fighting them? And if you want to get the praise of the wicked, you can praise them. You can flatter them. Such as keep the law, contend with them. We're reminded, don't forget the antithesis. Argue, call a spade a spade, fight, speak the truth, make them shot you down they're going to shout people down, fine, let them shout you down. Make them shout you down. You might find, if you raise your voice enough, that some other people start to shout from your direction. You might find that it turns into a reality that they think, oh, they're not the only ones that can shout. There's, we're not called to convert the world with power. We are called to use power to prevent the converted from being trampled underfoot. There is a duty to use power to resist evil. And there's a duty for us to not give up all the institutions or to give away everything we build. It has to be defended across generations, such as keep the law contend with the wicked. We owned everything. Christians owned everything. America was Christian-owned. We owned everything. We built all the universities. We built all the hospitals, all the denominations. We've lost them all because there were not bold men to contend with the wicked. We're rebuilding, we're taking things back. It's our call to be bold, and it's our duty to contend. So, you need to know the goal, and you need to know what means are allowable, and you need to know what means are available. tend to your herds be careful to preserve proper alliances know the law of god disciple the nations verse five evil men do not understand justice but those who seek the lord understand all if we meditate on the law of god day and night we should understand justice very deeply Rather than oppressing the poor, we should be known those as those who are defenders of the rights of the poor. Verse 6, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. The knowledge of God is the good. Money is not the good. Money is for the knowledge of God. For gaining it and for applying it. Money is for the knowledge of God. Without the knowledge of God, money is a poor God. The worship of money is disappointing. You can't take it with you. If you're a fool, you can't preserve it. If you're grasping with money, you will find that you lose friends and reputation. Reputation is more valuable than gold. In your search for gold, you can destroy a reputation. And so we look at money, and we see that integrity is superior to money. A concern for consistency in applying the law of God. A concern for consistency in thought, word, and deed. A concern to see the truth in its fullness applied inside, outside, and with others. Verse 7, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. So, if you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you're one who is under authority, discernment is displayed in the application of the law. And if you want to keep the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother is, comes in applying the law and being careful with your companions. Bad company corrupts good morals. A companion of gluttons shames his father. And we're reminded earlier on of the types of people to avoid and the types of friends to have. And so if you have a father who's prominent and then you bring shame on your father, how long is his work going to last? He's gained a good name. He's gained property. He has station. How long is that going to last? If it's going to go across generations, then that requires a discerning son. This is a reminder both to sons and to fathers. Fathers, do you care about honor? If you care about honor, raise discerning sons. If you want discerning sons, teach them. Spend the time disciplining. There's lots of stuff early on. What does this serve as? This is a reminder for, fine, you're in middle management, you're in the court, you're in power, you matter, great, Good job. Don't forget to rule your house well. How many pastors have become disqualified because they stopped leading their houses? But then also in the modern church, how many of them get removed for that? Not many. They should be. They should be removed. Verse 8. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. Hey, who do you charge usury from? What's usury? Biblical usury is charging interest on a loan that should be a charity loan. So you charge interest on a loan that should be a charity loan. Who are you charging interest against? The poor. Extortion. Do people typically extort the powerful or the weak? Do you, do you typically extort people that are weaker than you? Is that how it works? who here extorts people? Anybody? <laughs> Thank you. Tell us. If you extort people, it's because they're weaker than you, and you think you have power that you can exercise over them. So that's going to be the poor. So if you use your power to oppress the poor, don't worry. You're going to be very poor. You will lose it all. And everything you gathered will be given to the poor. It'll be given to somebody who's going to care for the poor. It's going to be given to the righteous. Verse 9 One who turns away his ears from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. I think prayer is a pious thing. If you reject caring about what God says in his law, then God rejects caring about what you have to say in your prayers. If you believe the word of God, you believe that the law of God teaches you the difference between right and wrong. And if that's the case, a part of that faith that God gives to us is a concern to know what he teaches us is good or evil. One turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Whoever causes the upright, verse 10, whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit. You take a righteous man you try to pervert him to wickedness and you're doing harm to him, that's going to be used to bring you harm. But the blameless will inherit good. People in power have more influence, more ability to influence other people than people who are outside of power. So there's this commending here of the use of power not to turn people away to wickedness, but instead to turn them to righteousness, to be blameless, And the knowledge that trying to get people to do evil in order to advance your own interests is something that does not result in your good, in an inheriting of what is good. It's harmful. So self-interest is appealed to there. And so this is about how do you rule in such a way as to actually advance your own good. Verse 11, the rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. Now that searching out of the poor or the poor man is searching out a a rich man in other words he can you can you can search out whether or not he is wise. They'll test you. If somebody's wise and they don't have money then they're going to deal with rich people in positions of authority as employers or whatever whatever position of rule they've got. And there's going to be a testing. There's a testing of is this person wise or not. A part of that is If you're wise, you don't want to serve a fool if you can avoid it. If you're wise, and you're concerned about being ruled by somebody who's wise, there's going to be a testing. And at the same time, generally, those who have a lot of resources think it's because they're so smart. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? I am. Well, I must be smart. That general tendency to think, whether you inherit it, whether you make it, whether you win the lottery, to think that because I have money, I'm smart, I'm wise. There's a tendency to think that way. There's a draw to pride. Who gives the power to make money? God. Who gives wealth? God. And so to apply that to self, to think that you have the power to make yourself rich, is to think of yourself as God. You think you have the power to make money? You think you're God. So if that's the case, material wealth, just like wisdom, should be viewed with humility, realizing it's a gift from God. The rich man is wise in his own eyes. There's a temptation to think that. And we're told earlier on in the book of Proverbs that there's more hope for a fool than one who thinks he's wise. There's a danger for the one who thinks he's wise in his own eyes. That person is not correctable. There's a pride that comes with wealth as a danger of uncorrectability. And you'll remember, we're told, as one of the key verses, central verse in the whole chiasm, 29 verse 1, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. What's going to happen to the wicked powerful who are proud and will not be corrected? They will be destroyed, and that without remedy. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?